You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And we're back with an all-new Keep It Home Edition, minus Aida. What the hell happened, Aida? She got hit by a bus. My favorite way for uh, an Aaron Spelling-like show to progress, uh, not to foreshadow who our guest is. (laughs) Yeah, uh, no, she is a bit under the weather, so she will not be joining us this week. But she will be joining us later in the show for a pre-recorded interview with... Issa Rae. But that's not the guest who I was talking about because we have a very strange keep it today with two guests. We are also interviewing Kristen Davis, she of a show called Sex in the City that I've only seen probably 11 or 12 times. I don't remember it well. Um, but yes, now <laughs> she's in Melrose is a, Place, yeah, of course. And Melrose Place, which was the Aaron Spelling reference I uh, mentioned earlier. And now the host of a reality show that requires journalistic integrity on our parts because I have some questions about this show. <laughs> Called Labor of Love. That's all I'll say about it so far. Truly, the early Fox jumped out with not just her Melrose Place, but also this reality show. Oh, I was thinking about Gia Tolentino, who we had on our show recently, and she was once upon a time on a reality show. Just that whole era of like experimental new reality shows that are crazy and mind-boggling, and then VH1 took those over for a long time. Anyway, what a wonderful part of our history. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Excited to talk about all of that with Kristen today. And also, we're going to talk about the culture we consumed this week, which was mostly a lot of drama. Oh, yes. A lot of music drama. Anyway, we'll be right back. Exciting news. Ahead of this year's elections... The team at Cricket has been hard at work trying to find the best ways for all of you to impact its results aside from casting your own ballot. Now they have an answer. Vote Save America's brand new Adopt a State program. The Adopt a State program lets you directly support the work of organizers, volunteers, and candidates in the six key battleground states that will be most important to winning a progressive majority in 2020. And those are, of course, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. When you sign up to adopt a state at votesaveamerica.com slash adopt, you'll get specific calls to action. Things you can do yourself from home right now. That will make a huge impact on the races in these states. What state are you going to adopt? Oh, gosh. Well, due to the Madonna credibility, I think I will have to pick Michigan. Mm. She does make fun of them an awful lot, and I feel bad for them. They just have a bunch of peninsulas. They're fine people. (laughs) I will, of course, be picking my home state of Wisconsin. Will they take you? They'll take you back? Okay, great. Um, I'm going to start doing Keep It Wisconsin Edition. Just me in a field with a cow talking about the election. Lots of lakes, <laughs> the occasional tall tree. Anyway, you can adopt a state now at votesaveamerica.com slash adopt. 
I'm still me, and Khloe Kardashian is still her, allegedly. <laughs> so what culture have we been consuming this week, Lewis? Well, first of all, I just want to reference that picture quickly. I, that picture, what you're talking about, there's some new photo of Khloe Kardashian out that where she doesn't look as Khloe Kardashian as we usually think of her. I really thought that was a picture in 1998 of Denise Richards. Did you not think, oh, Starship Troopers? Yeah, a lot of people thought it was Denise, and it just quickly became a meme over the weekend. I mean, I, we rarely talk about the Kardashians when they're not involved in social justice issues, apparently. <laughs> um, but I think everyone was truly shocked by this photo. There was a lot of lighting going on, too. It's just she looked, she looked very Caucasian in the way that Kardashians usually do not want to be. Unfortunately, the best and worst of Twitter, to me, is when everyone gathers around a photo because you can tweet the photo and then put your little comment right underneath it. It's like a compact social media experience, mm -hmm. you know. But in this case, it also means people are, whatever, overly critical of usually a woman's looks. Mm -hmm. If we could get into, like, crazier photos, you know, I don't know what I would prefer to see in that space, but just know this is where Twitter is its most toxic and fun. So, I mean, I'm part of the problem, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Speaking of some toxicity on social media, this literally happened last week after we recorded, but Miss Lana Del Rey took to Instagram to voice her frustrations about her place in the music industry, specifically her refusal to ooze overt sexuality and her belief that, you know, she is penalized for glamorizing abuse. This happened in the late hours of the evening. I was remember being in bed unable to fall asleep and all of a sudden this dropped and I was like, girl, why are you still awake? <laughs> right. Posting your 95 theses on Instagram. <laughs> also, there's a quality about this thing that she wrote where it reminds me of my old adage, get out of your mentions, because half of what she's saying, I truly don't know what she is talking about. Mm -hmm. In a way, I, I can hear that she's talking about being compared to other artists and the, and the content of what she's talking about. But it sounds like she's coming from a place of feeling underappreciated. And then I think, weren't you nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys last year? Like, I'm just not on the same page at all. This is a classic case of truly being... Um bothered by things from your past and like i said being in your mentions reading the comments reading what people write about you online right because i can see her being pressed about criticisms that maybe came from her born to die era when she first came out she was routinely lambasted by the media she was made fun of uh, her snl appearance for instance became a meme and um that is a part of lana's past but it really isn't anything that people are currently talking about. Not only was she nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys, she had a critically lauded album with Norman fucking Rockwell. Like, it was on everyone's end-of-year list, and it reminds me of when she got into that fight with Ann Powers, who wrote a review of Norman fucking Rockwell, where she compared Lana to Joni Mitchell right. in the songwriting capabilities that she has, but... For some reason, Lana took issue with a critique and just started a whole fight. Like, And, of course, the Lana Del Rey fans um, were jumping on Twitter, dragging Ann Powers, going, who the fuck is this, et cetera, as Stan Culture happens to do. It reminds me of this moment because 
I don't know what she's mad about. I don't know why she chose this particular time to be mad because no one was talking about Lana Del Rey at this moment as well. Like, she wasn't in the cultural conversation this week, at least. When this happened, the first leg of the Lana Del Rey social media experiment she embarked upon, I thought, this is a classic keep it situation where it drops on, like, Tuesday night after we've recorded. We don't get to talk about it. We've missed this moment. And then I I mentioned that to Ira at the time. And he said, oh, I have the feeling it's going to go on all week. And then it did. She added a video component. She keeps adding dimensions to this. I'm afraid she's going to apologize to me in my house. (laughs) So the first wave of response to this, since I was still awake then um, because of the quarantine insomnia that I have. Mm -hmm. Oh, sleeping is an exciting new adventure we all get to do now. (laughs) Yeah, um, especially because it's always that small window of between 2 and 4 a.m. where I try to decide if I'm going to take a Xanax to knock myself out or if the episodes of Cheers that I'm watching can put me to sleep. Oh, what era? Um, I'm in the middle of season two. Oh, okay. All right, well, it's about to get juicy. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, the first people I saw tweeting about it were black people that I follow in the U.K. Like, black U.K. Twitter was tweeting about it and making jokes. And I was like, if they're already awake... Why is she still awake tweeting this? And then the Lana Del Rey stands tried to get ahead of it, um, saying, you know, she has a point. You know, she's talking about how the industry treats her and, like, doesn't let her be a feminist. But people were quick to point out that her mention of the specific artist that she did, uh, she mentioned Doja Cat, uh, Cardi B, Kalani, Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, and um, Ariana and Camila was really singling out black women because she made a point of mentioning that they had gotten number ones recently. Specifically, you know, Nikki and Doja went to number one with the Say So remix. Like, and Beyonce and Megan Thee Stallion were number two with the Savage remix. You know, made a comment about how these women are able to talk about cheating and, you know, like basically being hoes and, you know, all that sort, and they're not criticized, but she's criticized for glamorizing violence, which was an insane uh, reading of any type of response that these women have ever gotten. Uh, Beyonce can't drop an album without being accused of setting women back. Well, also, it's like, say who's doing the criticizing to just straw man it up and be like, someone somewhere criticizes me about this and doesn't criticize that. It's like, that's not an actual argument. Like, I can't get on the same page with you if you're not going to be specific about where it's coming from. Is it men? You know, is it pop fans? You know, like, those are different people who deserved criticisms for different reasons. And to just say, they all get this type of praise and I don't, one, doesn't make sense to me. And two, feels, I don't mean to diminish everything she said, but it feels like a pity party. That's it. Yeah. It felt like a pity party, and it had, unfortunately, tinges of racism in it because she's pointing out um, mostly women of color. I don't know what Kalani was doing in this because <laughs> I she love hear Kalani, us talking? But, she ha- but, but she does not have a number one. No. And... <laughs> <laughs> Did she hear us talking about her and Charlie Puth that other week? I, maybe we set this into motion. I have no idea. 
It was another moment where it was like, I don't know where this is coming from. And I also don't know what you're talking about in the context of each sentence. Yes. Because Kalani didn't belong in this. And fans were quick to point that out on Twitter, too. Like, that was when she first lost me. And then when she posted her initial response to it, that was when I was like, okay, bitch, I've had it. When she talked about how she was called a Karen and how she was annoyed at the internet making it a women of color issue. I was like, read the room. (laughs) I have a comment on Karen's that will come at the end of the podcast. But I just want to say also, in the first part of what she said, which we already discussed, she talks about how other women write songs about cheating. What kind of tip or gore complaint is that? Who the fuck cares if people write songs about cheating? It's like, also... Stop asking for people to appreciate your feminist point of view when you are literally discrediting other people for what they are writing based on the subject matter. Like, that's also anti-feminist. There's also a weird tangent where she implies that she paved the way for other women like her to sing about the subjects that she sings about (laughs) as if Fiona did not fetch some bolt cutters literally a month ago. And as if music didn't start before the year 2010 or wherever (laughs) she jumped on the scene. (laughs) Like, plenty of women inspired her. Plenty of women were doing what she was doing, and a lot better. I think Lana Del Rey is just obsessed in a way with not being compared to other people. To me, the tone, every time she's come on the internet, is that she's coming from an original and authentic place, and that means comparisons to other people are moot. Mm -hmm. But I think she should receive that mainly as a compliment. Having your name put in the same constellation as other, you know, important artists is... Just how, how, like, our brains work. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's how we think of, you know, the cultural moment. And she, I think, thinks of it as inherently belittling to her. Mm-hmm. And it was especially ironic just because I've always considered the best part of Lana, at least since her inception, was that she had a sense of humor about herself. You know, I assume that she knew that the yeah. shtick she was doing was a commentary you know, like that she was being meta about the fact that, you know, she sings and acts like um, Nancy Sinatra brought back from the dead. Right. I was, I was going to say drowsy Ver- Veronica Lake. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like she was in on the joke most of the time. You know, it's like why she would sing songs like Summertime Sadness and, you know, Young and Beautiful. It was this idea that she knew what her aesthetic was, but she was having fun with it. And yeah. This entire situation just made me believe that maybe she takes herself too seriously and doesn't get the joke. It's not like it's a crime to take yourself seriously, but also stop it every once in a while, you know? So that was mostly what consumed my week. But also, another artist had to take to Instagram to defend themselves this week. Doja Cat. Ira, this situation almost needs to be re-explained to me because as I have absorbed it, I continue to not be able to believe it. So... Doja Cat, who at this point has been canceled multiple times by the internet. I I remember when she first dropped that um, Moo song uh, that we were really into, and it was revealed that she had said the word faggot so many times in videos before, and she didn't care that she'd said it. And we as gay people had to get over it because we like the bops. Uh, (laughs) Somehow we prevailed. (laughs) Shocking. I know. (laughs) Then it was revealed that 
her entire album was produced by Dr. Luke. <laughs> Very 2019 scandal, yes. Right. Uh, then we were like, you know what? We still listen to Kim Petras. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> Press on. You know, co- cognitive dissonance <laughs> works best. And then there came these reports this week. So she apparently used to participate in tiny chat chat rooms, rooms where, like, incels and um, alt-right men would gather and, I don't know, jack each other off with um, racist jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm assuming that that's what they do. Um, there were a lot of video clips where you could listen to the men talking while she's in the chat room with them, but um, I really just had no interest in listening to what they were saying. But why? <laughs> Um, We all have something we can learn. (laughs) Uh, So she used to participate in these rooms, and she's there while men are saying racist things and um, apparently, you know, sort of like belittling herself for being black and being sexual for them as well. And um, then there came the fact that she has this song called Didn't Do Nothing, which is a reference to an alt-right racist term that is used for black victims of police brutality. A didn't do nothing, in their words, is, you know, what the surviving members of a victim's family says when that person is killed by the police. You know, like, they didn't do nothing. You know, it's very, um, it's very blackface, very um, Amos and Andy um, jiving um, Jim Crow talk. Yeah, all the classics. Anyway, she has a song titled This, and... Then that's what caused her to get on Instagram claiming, you know, that the song title was her reclaiming this racist term, etc. I don't know. The song is pretty stupid <laughs> and nothing about it uh, implies to me a reclamation of the word. But you know what? That's her art. By the way, I, I guess we'll get into this when we talk about the Lady Gaga song. I still feel like Say So is the song of the summer. How do you feel about that? It's a really good song. I know. I mean, it just it feels summery to me, you know. Unfortunately, but um, the absolute best part of this Doja story is that last night she got on Instagram Live for 30 minutes and gave a sort of apology. It wasn't really an apology. It was really more of an attack. And it made me wonder, where is her handler? Uh-huh. Where is her publicist? What are people doing to manage artists in the quarantine, because this Lana situation, this Doja situation, both of them continuing to unspool and get out of hand. And Doja was on Instagram saying for people coming into her mentions, attacking her, good for you. She's only clapping for essential workers who have actual jobs to do during this quarantine, and everyone else is irrelevant. The only thing she really seemed sorry for is offending the beehive which i mean that tracks right be afraid yeah uh she was very very afraid (laughs) of the beehive because apparently there's a video of her referring to beyonce as bianca um which some of the beehive says is referring to beyonce as a monkey oh god that better not be what it means i don't know yeah that seems like a reach to me but it was enough that she had to issue an apology to the Beehive. Quickly, before uh, we move on, the culture I'm consuming this week. This has to be a movie you care about, and I don't feel like we've discussed it on this podcast ever. 
I finally watched the original Alien this weekend. Mm-hmm. The 1979 uh, Sigourney Weaver epic, which I, I was definitely watching a very remastered version because there's no way it was this amazing looking at the time. There are a fair amount of horror movies like this now, and, and the first Alien is routinely called a horror movie, but it really is more like a Hitchcock movie to me in that it's all about dread. Mm-hmm. And I want to say in, in my um, Pantheon, I talked about the before movies last week being essential quarantine viewing because they got into the fun of just having a one-on-one conversation about connectivity between two people. This is another essential quarantine viewing to me because it taps into that feeling of quote unquote uncertain times. Mm-hmm. It taps into something is bigger than all of us. And you know, we are mere mortals and let's see what happens. Now, of course, in this case, it ends up being a disaster. The girl from the birds is no help at all. Veronica Cartwright. Um, <laughs> but it, to me, it felt, uh, I felt a little seen by this movie in a strange way. And also, mm-hmm. What you underestimate about this movie, looking back, is there's no guarantee that Sigourney is going to be the one who survives the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, she's one of several people it could be, and when she, you forget how triumphant it is that she's the one who makes it to the end. Not to spoil the whole thing, but I'm sure you realize that Sigourney Weaver moves on to the the rest of the franchise afterwards. Are you a huge fan of the original Alien, or do you prefer Aliens? I lo- I love both of them. You know, yeah. I think they're both very different films in the way that Terminator is a very different film from. T2. Yeah, though I think Aliens specifically is like Terminator 2. The same crunchy, noisy type of action movie. Yeah, Aliens. Yeah, exactly. You know, like both of the sequels go to a different place. um, And it makes sense that James Cameron is the director of Aliens, right? And Ridley Scott's flavor is an alien. And um, I think they're both great movies for different reasons. And I don't really have a favorite off the top of my head, but I absolutely do love Alien. And I love how moody it is, and I love how um, it feels like a classic horror movie just in a new setting. Yeah. Right? Um, Space stations should be creepy. Total. Yes, exactly. Also, additionally, what I love is the sheer pettiness of everyone involved. Like, Mm -hmm. there's people complaining about getting paid or, like, do I have to do this if we're heading home already? Mm -hmm. And just nobody on board feels like a hero. They all feel like working stiffs dealing with this situation and that's another way it, it reminds me of uh, the current pandemic is the sheer ambivalence in a certain way to the amount of terror occurring reminds me of, you know, every news story about people as- assembling in droves at the Ozarks. It's also just amazing that it birthed Ripley, you know, this um, female um, action movie icon that Sigourney plays. And of course, you probably already know that like Ripley was written as a man right. and she played it. And, you know, maybe... Unfortunately, that's the way for straight men to write iconic female characters. Because later when they try to make like an iconic female character, like an atomic blonde or something, it just feels like it's trying too hard. I remember being in college and people talking about Ripley being written as a man and saying like, oh, that's like one way to write an authentic female character is don't think of it as a woman. And then the actor comes in and whatever, adds adds femaleness. And (laughs) in retrospect, it just feels like we're saying, you know, well, she's not a woman. She's a person. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's 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 so crazy that that was taught to me or I interpreted that story as a way to get interesting female characters. When in a way, I think this worked as an anomaly. While you were busy watching Alien, um, in like two and a half days, I consumed all of this new reality series, Selling Sunset. Now, 
my, my other friends and I that we have mutual friends with, Ira, we have muted several terms on Twitter recently, and sun selling Santa is the new one. People do not shut the <laughs> fuck up about this. I do not know what is being sold or if it's next to the whiskey a go go or what. I do not care. <laughs> Though you're going to tell me now, and I'm going to listen. The second season of the series dropped this past weekend, and I remember the first season debuted around Coachella time last year, um, and I was there um, with two of our friends, and I didn't have time to really watch it because I was at Coachella. And then when the second season dropped, so many people who watch the same sort of Bravo shows at me assured me that I would enjoy it. So I started it, and I binged it all, and you know what? It is pretty... Absurd, but also fantastic. What is it? What is the show about? So it's about the Oppenheim Group, which is a real estate broker agency in West Hollywood. And it's about the homes that they sell. Um, But it's run by two brothers, Jason and Brett Oppenheim, and the women who work for them. Um, So it's sort of like a million-dollar listing plus Real Housewives. You know, it's these women and the drama they get into while they're selling homes mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. And the, one of the new girls who starts in season one, who's sort of the entry point into the series, is Chriselle Strauss, who um, I know because she plays um, Jordan on Days of Our Lives. Oh, and, you've seen that show, I've gathered. Yeah. Uh, and um, she joins the, you know, the lion's den of these women. Um, and you know, there's this woman, Christine, who is playing reality villain um, at an 11. Good. Uh, it gets to be too much by the end of season two, but um, it's just about their squabbles and you know, about interacting. And Chriselle uh, is married to Justin Hartley from This Is Us. Oh. Um, and also Passions. But of course, um, season two finishes and... She's still married, but between season two and season three, he divorced her. Okay. So the season three preview shows her dealing with the divorce from Justin, uh, who never appeared on the show. So part of it feels like this was like when Kelsey Grammer gave Camille Grammer season one of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. It was like, here, now you have something else. Goodbye. (laughs) I have to go be on Boss on Stars or whatever the fuck that is. Well, I'm so grateful now that we have a reality show that rhymes with Trishel. Trishel was out there on her own on The Real World Las Vegas. Finally, she has... Uh, those are those used to be my two favorite syllables in reality TV. Trishel is the perfect reality TV name. Yes, Trishel and Trishel. Yes. Well, season two has um, a new um, agent named Amanza. Great. Exactly what I called for. <laughs> Chriselle was shook. And altogether, that sounds like Cristela Alonzo. It's very confusing. Yes. And um, finally, our gay weekends were consumed with Rain On Me, the new Gaga and Ariana song, which I think is excellent. I like it better than Stupid Love. I, I do like it better than Stupid Love. It reminds me of... Like at the end of an episode of Queer Eye, when like the makeover is revealed, what kind of song plays? You know? Well, yes. <laughs> like I'm stepping on out to some house beats. I will say though, because it invokes disco, it, it, for Lady Gaga and for Ariana Grande, it's a very disco-y song. And compared to most 2020 music, it is so much more danceable. So I'm already thankful for it in that regard. Mm-hmm. I will say, for a disco song, it, it has every, it has a hook, great vocals. I think one thing it does lack a little bit is a groove. Like, I'm not really sure you can sway to it. You can sort of hop to it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to me, it is ultimately, like, white quality. You know? (laughs) (laughs) 
This ain't no Donna Summer track. That's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> a little something for the Caucasians. It, it doesn't have, like, sex in it, really, you know? Yeah. She wanted to make a little something for the white girl, something in quarantine, something cute for the summer. Um, listen, I actually would say that I agree with that because the one aspect of its disco-ness that I feel like it's missing is... We need a 12-inch single. Yeah. Oh, please. Eight, you know? We need like, eight and a half minute songs. We need to be making yeah. up for Stairway to Heaven all the time. I want them to be long. The song could have a groove, I feel like, if it were longer. And classic disco songs would be like between six and ten minutes long. Oh, no. Love to Love You, Baby is like a one-act play. Yeah. Um, and so it every time I listen to the song, it, it feels incredibly short. Right. And, 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 and radio-y in that way, you know? Yeah. Definitely designed for radio, but um, far too short. I, I do love this direction of where Chromatica seems to be going. She said she was inspired by house music uh, and disco, and it seems like we're actually getting that from her as opposed to, I don't know, every other pop artist who has promised us a disco album and then never delivered it. Right. Carly Rae Jepsen. I will, yes. I will <laughs> say about that, though. There's a quality about Madonna where when she does her like weird new phase and has a weird new look, at the time when she does it, I usually have this feeling of, is this right? Is this contrived? And then in retrospect, because she was doing actually what she wanted, I, I usually think it falls in line historically. It ends up looking really flattering and interesting. Whereas with this album, I do worry a little bit if she's just giving us what we want as opposed to what she really would want mm -hmm. that said the music is good so I, I i'm optimistic and i'm excited that said you just brought up carly ray jepson my favorite song that came out this weekend was fake mona lisa from dedicated b-side carly ray jepson just released as she is wont to do a b-side album version of a previous album she put out and for the most part it's kind of like it's, it's a cute album it's familiar carly ray jepson sounding music but one song which is basically unfinished. It's like a two-minute, ten-second song. Mm -hmm. Fake Mona Lisa, you have got to put this on because that has the squishy, boppity, kind of a danceable groove that I'm talking about that, to me, makes it even better than Rain On Me. I like that. I also like This Is What They Say off of that album. There's like a couple really good standout tracks, but ultimately it's probably one of my lesser B-side offerings from her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the emotion B-side being a highlight. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of fun with Rain On Me, and I really did also appreciate Gaga's Chromatica playlist that she released on Spotify with inspirations that will get you ready to dance and obviously inspire the album. And one of the albums that's on there is the 1999 Cassius album. Oh, cute. Did she also have um, Gypsy Woman, She's Homeless by Crystal Waters on that playlist? I believe she does, yes. People need to know about the dance music of... 93, 94 a little bit more. Yeah. That's when you get your Jeanne, which is the, the yeah. definitive barbecue music. So get in on that. I mean, my favorite Crystal Waters sample is on um, Diana Ross's If You're Not Gonna Love Me Right. Yes. Oh, God. And a, like, 94, 95 album, which is very under-listened to in the Diana Ross um, catalog. That's a good recommendation. I love Latter-day Diana Ross. And just like... Uh, one of my favorite Donna Summer songs is The Latter Day, This Time I Know It's For Real, from the uh, late 80s. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, when we're back, we have some serious questions for Kristen Davis. Q. 
Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Lewis and I are so excited to welcome a guest who needs no introduction, Kristen Davis, who is joining us to talk about many things, but also her new show on Fox, Labor of Love, a reality show where a 41-year-old divorcee has to choose between 15 different men, one of them who will be the candidate to impregnate her. We have a lot of questions. I'm sure you do. I'm sitting here with a notepad. My first question is, j- just just to, I guess I'll have Kristen explain it herself, but um, my first question is, Kristen, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> you know, Louis, it's tough. It's tough because, like, you know, you have an idea. And, and in this case, someone came to me with an idea. And we talked about it for, like, two years. And it made sense mm-hmm. to us. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And then... Sometimes when things hit the air and you see everyone's reaction and you're like, oh, wow, this is so interesting. I mean, that is part of the process, right? I guess. Basically, the gist is that we were sitting around talking about the road to parenthood. Mm-hmm. And this is true for men and women. And, you know, our, our, our culture is so focused on success, success, success. And people are waiting later to get married and later to get pregnant. And, you know, what does that mean? And what is it like? And you know, can you even talk to your friends about it? And we felt like, no, there wasn't really a conversation about this kind of cultural phenomenon right now. Now, obviously, I used to be a part of something that was, in fact, part of the cultural conversation about this, mm-hmm. Sex in the City, obviously, but there hasn't been much to kind of fill the void. So that's how it came about. And uh, then one thing led to another. We met this woman, Christy Katzman, who was already freezing her eggs and kind of on the road to 
single motherhood. And then we said, would you want to be on this show? And we would pick the people for you based on your list of what you wanted. And here we are. So to yeah, reiterate, it's a show where people are competing to be the father of uh, a baby who's uh, a, for a woman who's uh, 41 and freezing her eggs. Yes, but in theory, I want to mention they're not competing to definitely do it. Mm -hmm. See, I think that's part of what gets lost in the translation. It's more about setting them up and seeing what happens. And I'm there to remind her that she does not have to pick anybody. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, I think the most interesting thing about this show is your role in conjunction with the woman. Because, for instance, if you watch The Bachelor, Chris Harrison is supposed to be sympathetic to The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, but he's not really like a confidant per se, whereas you are acting no, almost as like, like, there's like a midwife characteristic to you. What, <laughs> did, did you know when going in that you would have to take on this super empathetic part of the show? It would have been harder not to do that. Like I was concerned that they wanted me to be Chris Harrison or even Jeff Probst. If you think about like the super successful host in there, mm -hmm. they're very like straight faced and like kind of calm, authoritative, like, you know, I don't know what they are exactly. They're they're like an aloof parent kind of like. Mm -hmm. Um, and I I'm just not. I didn't know how I was going to do that. So I said, you guys, I I'm going to try to keep my opinions to myself because obviously I'm not Christy and I'm not living her life. But on the other hand, I might have some opinions. And what am I going to do? And they said, just be yourself. And I was like, okay, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I I will say by the way that like the hosting role suits you as much as I was sitting here like absorbing the concept of the show and like in shock in particular where the first episode goes there's yes, I yes. think there's I think you really are comfortable doing it did you expect to be comfortable just <laughs> helming a show like this I'm not I'm not comfortable I'm not I'm so nervous I have a little you know earpiece and I have a producer who I love so much who's like you know a wonderful woman and I'm talking to her in my mic which is right here and I'm like help me help <laughs> me but they cut that part out right I'm comfortable with the subject matter and I felt comfortable with our producers because because most of us had been involved for a long time so I knew what we were going for and it was a very fascinating process I mean I've never been around reality TV I, I had no uh, real understanding of the fact that they literally never turn the cameras off I was just like well, uh, I'd turn around there'd be like 50 cameras I'd be like ah, turn them off cut, cut, cut. <laughs> they never did they never cut so like that first episode I was like cut cut it no <laughs> Didn't happen. Uh, Didn't happen. I mean, well, even just speaking <laughs> of this show being on Fox and being wild and subject matter, one of my favorite television shows, more so than Sex in the City, to be honest, is Melrose Place. Ah! Um, I started watching it with my mom at a younger age. Uh, wow. She was watching it, and I was far too young to be watching this show, but uh, I would see it every week when she watched it. And recently... I think in quarantine, too, so many other friends of mine have been discovering the show. Um, There's so many people tweeting about watching it and just being amazed with, you know, this sort of time capsule of the 90s, right? Oh, very much. Very much. I did not realize that was happening. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. A lot of new people discovering Melrose. And it's just sort of... Wow. How was that, uh, like, pre-Sex in the City? So, Ooh. you know, like, how was yeah. that subject matter, especially during that time, you know, you're doing all sorts of crazy storylines, um, and it was sort of an introduction 
you know, sort of post-dynasty era, but like to younger people in America watching the mm-hmm. kind of crazy mm-hmm. stuff that I feel like is commonplace on TV now. Well, that's a good point, Ira. This is why I follow you on Twitter. I love your takes. <laughs> love your takes. So when I got Brooke on Melrose Place, it was at the height of the show. So for me, I was just beyond thrilled and excited that someone was going to pay me to go work. And I had so much enthusiasm. And, you know, it was slightly misplaced in that um, culture. Because <laughs> they, were, they weren't really an enthusiastic bunch, really, to, to tell you the truth. Um, so it was interesting. <laughs> um, and I really wanted to be good, you know, which was also, like, kind of odd for them. Like, I hope he doesn't get mad at me. I think I've said this before. But Andrew Shue would say, like, you'd be in the, the makeup trailer and he'd be like, listen, when we go in there, do not try to move around the set. I was like, you mean you don't want to do blocking? And he'd be like, no. And I'd be like, but we have to move around. It's weird. And he was like, don't do it. We'll be here all day. And I was like, but, you know, I've been in acting class for like 15 years. I really want to, you know, do some stuff. And like one time I went to the props department and I was like, listen, I'm working in this office and I thought maybe I could have a notebook and I could have a pen because, you know, Brooke really wants to be an excellent assistant. She's trying to, you know, it's like that all about Eve storyline. And I was trying to, you know, succeed. And they were like, no, no, <laughs> no props. And I was like, why? Why? And they said, well, because then you would look down. And I was like, yes, but, you know, in offices, people might look down. I could hold it up kind of like like this. They were like, no, no, Mr. Spelling wants to see your eyes. <laughs> oh, wow. Like he had a sort of, um, I know. When I, I always talk about how like uh, Merv Griffin hired Vanna White and Pat Sajak for Wheel of Fortune because he said their heads were too big for their body. And I would like, are people who are in charge of TV like obsessed with like, we've got to be looking at the eyes, like the eyes are where the money is. The eyes is where the money is. And I'll tell you, as a producer of Labor of Love and a host, sometimes I'd be like, crazy, look up. Like it gets in the back of your head. And I'm like, you got to look up, baby, look up. <laughs> We can't, we don't know how you feel. Um, but yeah, it was a little bit of an extreme version of that, you know? So it was kind of hard for me. And and also they kind of couldn't decide what they wanted Brooke to be or do. Mm-hmm. So I would fluctuate. Like sometimes there'd be like a comedic episode, which I really enjoyed. And then they were like, now you're going to kill yourself. And I'd be like, why? What do you mean? I mean, it was uh, the whole thing was just a trip and a half. And I think we were doing... I want to say 26 episodes a year, a season, something Mm -hmm. crazy. So it was like a factory and you were in your slot and you had to like really do, do well, or at least that's how I felt. And then after a while they were like, we don't know what to do with you anymore. And I was like, that's okay. (laughs) I mean, you know, I get it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they, they had you trip and fall and hit your head on the side of the pool, drown. And then you came back as a ghost. I know, and I love that episode. My all-time favorite. The two together. I loved when I fell because none of us had any body fat because we weren't really allowed to have any body fat. And they couldn't get me to sink to the bottom of the pool. So they had to weight me down. Like I was wearing like body weights under my clothes. And then my hair, you know, goes like up like a mermaid. I love that. And then I come back and I get to be an evil ghost and mess with Billy. Oh, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to Sex in the City in a moment, but, like, have you had any lasting impact of being on Melrose? Like, do people talk to you about that show still? People talk to me, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, they definitely do. And I hadn't thought about it. I haven't been out that much lately, obviously, but but we'll see. I do feel like there were younger people talking to me about it late, lately-ish, mm-hmm. where I'm always surprised. I mean, it, that's what's great about a career. You know, if you're lucky enough to get the work and, 
you do this character and you do that character and you think it's all going to be Charlotte, you know, obviously. And a lot of it is. But then there's other things that connect with people and you don't know what it's going to be. And I, I like that part. Mm-hmm. Now, was Darren Starr still involved in Melrose when you joined? Yeah. And is that how Sex in the City came about for you? Yeah. And I literally had to do whatever Darren asked me to do for like 10 years. I'm <laughs> <laughs> giving me my first two jobs. I gave Darren so many awards for charities and, you know, whatever, which is fine. That's how it looks. But yes, Darren hired me at Melrose and I think he perceived Brooke as being a little bit funny, mm-hmm. but then he left Yeah, and I was like, uh, who, uh, who, you know, who gets me here? I don't know. And I think that's part of the reason they didn't know what to do with me. And then he did another show that didn't work. And then he went to HBO and decided to change things up a bit. Mm-hmm. Sex and the City happened. Yeah. He sent it to me, told me to read Carrie. I was like, no, I can't. I'm not. I can't. I'm not her. I'm this other one that you don't write a lot about. Um, and then luckily I got it. Yeah. I think that other show was Central Park West, wasn't it? Yes. 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 Imagine yes. Ira yes, not New knowing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Good job. That was his first New York foray. Okay, mm. when I think of Sex and the City, it, it's a show, obviously, I mean, like, we're gay men, it comes up a lot just anyway, but in, in the way that I think about, like, the Devil Wears Prada, or maybe even Clueless, there are some things that when they come on TV, I have no choice but to watch whatever is put in front of me, yeah. and, and but, like, I don't feel that way about any other TV show, and I was wondering, what do you think it is about that show that immediately settles people in. Like, why do I want to just, like, live in that show like it's a soup every time it's on? I think it's magic. Yeah, <laughs> good I really answer. Do. <laughs> I do, I do. My, I have a friend, and he has a mom who's um, an artist, and she's really, like, she lives in the woods, and she's not really, like, a pop culture person. And a long time ago, she said this to me. We were at, um, we were at the opening of Shakespeare in the Park that he was starring in, and she turned to me and she said, you know... I watch your show. And I said, wow, thank you. I'm so surprised. She said, I don't know why. I said, I I understand. And she said, you know, I think it's the colors. (laughs) All right. Okay. You know, whatever. I mean, I just think there's like a weird alchemy that can happen or not happen, obviously. And you can't really necessarily control it. And I think that we had that. And I think it has to do with the, the four of us but i think it also has to do with our writers who are incredible and i know you can you know criticize the puns and whatever which you guys have done which i'm aware of but um, that's okay. oh, we're a pun making group okay. by the way no, nobody here <laughs> nobody here is mad about that yeah but it's okay it's okay it's okay i mean this is it's an interesting thing that like people want to say like and uh, i don't know if you know woke charlotte do you know woke charlotte oh, yes. from um, On Instagram. yeah i love woke charlotte which is amazing but like we were a you know, in the times that we were in, right, we were definitely in and of them. And I feel like we were progressive for those times. And we could be so much more progressive now, of course, potentially, I don't know, but whatever, it is what it is. And I don't, I can't explain it. No, you know, it's definitely from an era where women's television still wasn't really being taken seriously. If mm-hmm. people take it more seriously now, you know, like I love Emily Nussbaum's, um, essay about sex in the city you know sort of about carrie as an anti-hero in you know yeah. the sort of Ooh, yes. way of t- tony soprano you know it, walter white about that. that's right yeah and um it is just sort of that show that all, first of all it's always on right no uh, by the way if there are people I, who <laughs> haven't seen sex in the city by now like you don't own a television it's crazy yeah <laughs> i mean this past weekend 
it was just on TV. I was passing by the TV and the Kirsten Johnson falling out the window episode was there. And of course, I had to Good sit one. down and watch the entire thing. <laughs> Dark, though. That one hurts me. That one hurts me. I don't personally watch it because it, to me, it just, it's so, uh, I remember so intensely, like whatever was going on or how hot we were, how tired we were, whatever. You know, I remember so much of it because the whole experience was just so incredibly intense. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because just recently, <laughs> I worked with someone, a hair person who said, you know, I'm going to hot roll your hair. And I was like, well, I, you know, I I don't think we need to put hot rollers in my hair. And she said, well, why not? And I said, well, I'm going to look like Shirley Temple. And then I'm going to look like Charlotte when it starts to fall. She said, who's Charlotte? And I was like, (laughs) what do I do here? What do I do here? Uh, It was really a dilemma. And I still don't really, I, I, it's like such an odd thing. It's a very odd thing to feel like that's you but it's not you and then people are like in your industry say they don't it's rare but occasionally when they do say they don't know you're just like i don't know i don't know how to talk to this person (laughs) charlotte's your language yeah um it's true charlotte is it's certainly my hair language right like there's either charlotte hair or charlotte non-hair one of my favorite i think instagram posts just ever is you posted a picture one time just with cynthia I think it was after um, The Little Foxes, which she was doing on Broadway at the time. Uh-huh. Now, yeah. obviously, like, uh, Cynthia's journey in the public eye has been so one of a kind. You had the New York governor run, and she's just a rad uh, defender of public schooling, et cetera. Yes. Can you just talk about being friends with her? Because when you posted that picture with her, I'm like, I, I, I'm not somebody who thinks about the cast of Friends. Are they friends in real life? I don't care. But, like, the fact that you and her seem to have some sort of kinship struck me as particularly awesome. Yes. Thank you. I feel particularly lucky that we have kinship. I mean, we have so many similarities and so many differences, but we're kind of only children. We, 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 she lived like two blocks from me. Like we would ride to work together. Like the fact that we're different somehow helped us. Like I have this one picture with, if it didn't cause a lot of drama, I would post it, but I'm standing behind her on set. It's a Polaroid and she's standing in front of me and she's like mean mommy, like defending me. And I'm like, meek, like in the background. Um, and there were a lot of times that that happened, you know, and then there were a lot of times where because she's so strong, people don't realize you know, what she may be feeling. So then I would need to go and kind of advocate for her sometimes. And and we have a good balance of that. And we would vacation together. And I mean, this is true for a lot of us. And I don't want to get into any of the drama, obviously. But um, behind the scenes, our crew, our cast, like we had an incredible situation. And what we went through was so intense that it really bonded us, you know, and Cynthia and I certainly like I was just at her house right before the lockdown to the point where I was like, did I bring it back from New York to LA? I don't know. But I, but I didn't. We're all fine. We've been tested. But um, I just, I, you know, I love her passionately. I support her and all of her work. I think she's incredibly brave and, and amazing. And I'm glad that it made you happy. <laughs> you know, um, for my New Year's party, um, I had the idea to, like, use um, Polaroids. Oh, I love them. It was just reminding me of the fact that, like, yes, when you brought that up, um, the concept of we're all constantly taking photos of ourselves with friends with phones. And then I think about the treasure trove that people must have of just old photos. Because it's not like people didn't take photos constantly then. You just had to develop them, put them on a true. camera. 
and develop them. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And on set, obviously, we would take continuity photos and we would take uh, hair and makeup photos and we would take costume photos all on Polaroid. And I remember one time at the end of, possibly at the end of the show, they were going to throw them all out. And I was like, oh, I want some. So I have this big box here at my house, <laughs> which I love. I love that. I know. Um, when are we going to see you work with Darren again? Good question. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know what Darren is doing. Do you know what Darren is doing? I mean, there's, I don't know. We, there's we younger. We Michael Patrick King. Yes. Oh, younger. Right, right, right. I don't think I can be on younger, which is which is great. And I'm happy for them, but I, I think it's too similar. Don't yeah. you, Ira? A little bit, yeah. yeah. I have two friends who work on, on it. And um, I particularly love the Darren flourish in <laughs> when you're watching a show of his and you remember yes. that he created like Melrose Place because the like the Kristen Johnson scene, right? Like there'll be random scenes in his non Melrosey shows where just like something like that'll happen. I believe someone was blackmailing True. Sutton Foster in Younger in one season, and wow. then a beam from um, <laughs> construction falls and kills them. <laughs> and that's Whoa. how the story wrapped up. And it's just funny Crazy. things like that. Well, the thing is that Darren loved us. You know, his thing is like of the moment, right? Like he mm -hmm. likes the moment. And so sometimes he'll go to the next thing that he feels is of the moment. And he left us with Michael Patrick King, who is, in my mm -hmm. mind, a genius. And, a, and I love him dearly. And I think he was in charge when Kristen fell out of the window. Mm -hmm. I think that was a dark thing from his mind, possibly. <laughs> but we also had eight other women writers, which they, you know, don't get enough credit. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank that. you so much, Kristen, for joining Wait, us. Wait, we're done? No. Yeah. <laughs> Kristen. I mean, uh, what else do you want to say? <laughs> yeah. Well, remember, I just want to mention that back when I was supposed to be on the first time when my house almost burned down and I just couldn't string two sentences together and you guys intimidate me too much to try to be uh -oh. on when I can't think straight. I know. Well, because you're smart, you know. Um, we were going to talk about Holiday in the Wild on Netflix. Oh, yeah. The elephant movie. The it was elephant. very funny. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> so I just feel like, because I wanted you guys to say it, because I was so excited that you wanted to talk about it, because it was special. And, you know, those were real elephants that were rescued. And I was so lucky to get to go do it. You know. I have just always been an elephant fan. And also, it's <laughs> my... um. My mom's favorite animal. Love it. As a child, constantly, there were just always like elephant figurines uh, in the house. And I remember that was a very easy gift to get my mom, an elephant. Something. Love it. The same yeah. way that... I have a lot of elephants. <laughs> yeah. The same way I always got my grandmother Betty Boop things. It's like, it's nice knowing <laughs> when your parent is really into one particular thing and you can just totally. get the same gift every year. Very totally, no, my mom. Totally. My mom mentioned to one person in 1979 that she likes stuffed animal mice, and now our entire oh, no. house looks like it's infested. It's like every Christmas is frightening. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. intense. That's yeah. intense. I love elephants. Your mom and is I Mrs. Just Frisbee. Yesterday, ordered a new one. <laughs> I ordered a new little elephant statue yesterday, so I, I feel you. I'm I'm there. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on Keep It. You know, we're such fans it's of exciting. you. Yeah. You're amazing. You guys are great. And I love all of you. And, you know, best of luck. Thank you again for joining us, Kristen. And uh, you can all check out Labor of Love on Fox every Thursday night. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland. 
and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. And I am extra excited to have Issa Ray here today. Uh, literally just a couple weeks after our Cosmo story came out. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for that, by the way. It was such a flattering article. Um, I'm happy to be here. You said you need to stop legitimizing Ira's journalism career. It disturbs me. We can take him down one peg at a time if you refuse stories like this. <laughs> I'm sorry. He just does it so well. He's, he's holding it. Oh, I did it again. Look at me. Had I can't, seen, yes. can't help it. Yes, thanks for joining us, Issa. Thank you. So when I called you to do some follow-ups, you were debating whether or not to start Insecure Season 5 Writer's Room via Zoom, and now you're doing it, yeah? Full-fledged. It's, it's not via Zoom, mm-hmm. but it oh, is okay. via it's, it's via Google Meet, which is okay. struggling. <laughs> which I'm gonna be honest. It's not any better than Zoom. It's so... <laughs> it's such a challenge. Like, today, it really... Mm-hmm. I feel like it hit us all, because I think we're gearing towards the end of week three, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it has taken its toll on us, for sure. Yeah, so we literally just wrapped um, the show that I was writing on. Mm-hmm. And I think I was telling you that, like, this whole real world now that we're in of, like, writing TV shows and meeting with writers uh, over the internet, it's even more taxing, I feel like, than a regular 20 weeks of just sitting in a room, kicking in with each other. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Constantly staring at people. Um, staring like, at yourself? How is it changing... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. How is it changing your um like your workflow, like your just ability to come up with new ideas? It's definitely made us more efficient, but to the ideas of it, like so many of our ideas come from our writers living and going mm-hmm. out. And this is such an LA based show. It's so weird to not be able to roam the streets of LA and even thinking about locations and things that we'd like to feature that it's just, we're not going anywhere. So mm-hmm. we've been talking about, I don't know if this is the case in, in your room with your show it. I don't know if it applies, but like the COVID of it, we've been talking about whether or not we want to acknowledge it. Ooh, that's, yes. that's even yeah. more depressing. I was wondering about that. Yeah, because ours was animated. And so, and we oh, already yeah. sort of broke the season. We were two months in before we had to go into COVID. But yeah, wondering for creators now, such as yourself, like, are, are producers like even HBO, like, even asking you, like, hey, what do you think, like, COVID would be like on TV, you know, or is that just a question amongst yourself? Right now it's a question amongst ourselves. We're actually going to present our season arc to the the network probably like next week or something. And I do wonder if it'll come up, but they've never been like ones to suggest things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like everybody's going to have fatigue. Like, do y'all want to watch COVID stories on TV right now? (laughs) I do have to say no. I do have to say no. (laughs) Do you have to find like other like inventive ways to be inspired like uh, all all three of us are writers on tv yeah. shows actually and like mm-hmm. walking around the block for example not doing it for me like i need to find more <laughs> ways to generate things to write about 
Yeah, it, there's definitely that. I mean, it's it's a lot of taking from past stories and recounting mm-hmm. past things, uh, but absolutely not feeling inspired by looking at the same plants and houses that I've been looking at for, you know, like two and a half months now. You know, like the beyond even figuring out whether to mention COVID in the show, whether to like allow it to, you know, permeate the script, whatever. It's like, how are you guys writing and keeping that stamina when we don't even know if we can produce the shows that we're writing on right now, you know? Well, what's crazy is we were just talking about today, like LA's talking, not LA's county, but they're talking about resuming production on Monday. So it feels like people are going the way of, if you're going to die, you're going to die. It's just sadder. <laughs> but I got to like, watch my show. I got to get into this. It's hard. <laughs> it's just, it's so disrespectful. So I don't, I think I was dealing with that uh, before. I was just like, why are we doing this? We mm-hmm. don't even know when we're going to start. But everybody seems so pressed mm-hmm. to start that now I'm kind of just like, well, hold yeah. up. Go, go, go. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. We've seen protests around the U.S. US, like we are just like weeks, I think, from actors protesting outside Paramount. Being <laughs> yeah. Like we want to shoot. <laughs> if they don't <laughs> sit down, I mean, I can't even, I can't even fault them. But if I guess it's gonna get to a point where it's like, if you want to risk your life, then risk it. If if only Tyler Perry were Paramount and <laughs> WB mm-hmm. and were flying people private and putting them up, then. Maybe we'd feel more certain, but everybody doesn't have Tyler Perry coins. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yes, they do. They do have Tyler Perry coins. <laughs> They're just not using yeah. them. They're just not using them. Exactly. Um, a fascinating thing to me always is when people who become known for generating their own material, writing for themselves, end up taking just like acting projects as you have in this movie Lovebirds with Kumail. Like every time I watch a Tina Fey movie that she didn't write or Mindy Kaling, I'm thinking like, do you have to tap into a part of your brain that didn't exist before? Like now I'm just like a for hire person here to do a job. Does it feel completely alien in some respects or do you end up loving it more in different reasons? For In some ways I end up loving it more because as, especially with Lovebirds and the photograph, I was coming just off of Insecure. And so, so much of that is... Wait, what am I lying? I think I was. Yeah, I was. I was coming. It feels so long on it. But I was coming straight off of that. So it felt like a break of having to wear so many hats and you're just executing someone else's vision. But for sure, you're asking questions about the script. You're like, I'm still trying to give creative input when it's allowed, but I kind of have to wash my hands of, okay, this is the director's vision. This is the writer's vision. So I'm just, you know, executing what, what they want at the end of the day. And so it, it, it does become a bit easier to divorce myself from that until the movie comes out. Mm-hmm. I, like, have, of course, always been a huge Issa Rae fan, you know, coming up watching Insecure from its inception and even when it was on the internet. And then Thank watching, you. of course, and then watching Kumail separately, big stand up fan, watching his career and the way he came up, Franklin and Bash, all the fun stuff. I want to ask you, because it's so weird for these two worlds to meet in my head. I did not imagine that this would happen <laughs> ever. So, what was it like working with Kumail and how was that rapport on set? I love working with him. I, I feel like, you know, I made a friend. We think similarly, we're, we're very similar, but I, you know, he's just so smart and he's so incredibly witty and he just forces you to step up your comedic game naturally mm-hmm. just because he's just, he's a beast and he's not satisfied until he has like at least 10 alternate jokes. And <laughs> uh, there's just, there's something rewarding about, about working with him. And I like you, like I had watched him. I remember when I was living in New York, 
I used to listen to Fresh Air on my commute all the time. And I remember listening to an interview with him and feeling like, oh, this dude seems cool. Like, I'm so... And that was just when he was early in his stand-up career. Yeah. And to work with him is just something I never expected. But I'm so happy we did. Yeah. Um, I really found that, like... It's interesting trying to create a chemistry, too, like with a new actor, you know, because it's interesting how you on Insecure, you know, obviously you've been working for multiple seasons on the show now, mm-hmm. you know, so like you get to discover new relationships that actors have just from seeing them interact in scenes. You know, how do you go about creating sort of that vibe with Akumel, with um, Lakeith and the photograph, you know, like going about this is a new person that I have to give romance to, you know, like <laughs> make, make it look make it look palpable mm-hmm. on the screen for people, you know? So like sort of what's your process for getting to know these people and being comfortable? With the photograph, you know, that happened fairly quickly, but Lakeith and I had you know, met before and worked with each other briefly on other projects and, you know, been at some of the same parties. So it was just like we're kind of going into it. And uh, the movie luckily granted for us meeting for the first time. And the first scene that we shot was us meeting for the first time. And so we were kind of getting to know each other and get our groove while the, the movie was happening. And with something like The Lovebirds, Kumail and I were kind of redeveloping and discussing the script uh, behind the scenes in pre-production up until the project. And so we were spending a lot of time together talking uh, with the producers, talking with the writers, and obviously to each other just in terms of things that we wanted to be clear in the dynamic between this couple. And, And by way of doing that, we were sharing personal stories. So we were really getting to know each other and getting to know our sense of, of humor and uh, I think spent more time together before shooting than I feel like I've done on any of the other projects. Mm-hmm. Whereas Insecure, you know, you're you're doing table reads and things like that, but you're kind of just getting to to know each other on set too. But with the show, mm-hmm. with regulars, obviously it's different. If it's like a a Nathan or um, a Lawrence or a Daniel, like you know, you're working together so much, you're 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 getting used to each other. Mm-hmm. In this movie, I feel like the style of the comedy tends to run delirious, and not that Insecure <laughs> doesn't have like silly moments, but to me, the like the feel of this is so frenetic. And I was wondering what kind of learning curve there was to nailing it, or if it takes you an extra take to you know get to that kind of animaniac-like speed of this movie. Mm -hmm. It definitely was a balance of, okay, this is what is funny on the page, but this is also what I find funny. Mm -hmm. So what's the balance, you know? And so it's a lot of conversations. And it's also a lot of, frankly, like, oh, no, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. You know? And I think it's a polite, like, oh, no, no, thanks. I, I I don't feel like either this character would do this or it's just not necessarily my my style or um uh, aim of humor and it, luckily you know you have a director who's like okay okay well I threw it out there and, and you didn't want mm-hmm. it and otherwise it's like oh yeah I don't know if I can do this but I'm willing to try it mm-hmm. and then uh, the director is like oh thank you for trying that but no I agree you couldn't mm-hmm. do it or oh that worked you know so it's just it's definitely freeing and when you know that you're the, the movie's intention or the tone is supposed to be a specific way 
um, then you try to just kind of fit within that. Speaking of the tone, and like it's funny because we all are comedy writers in our own way. Mm-hmm. Me, like watching the movie and trying to figure out what's funny and how it's funny, and like he said, it's kind of slapsticky in a, in a maniac sort of way. But when you and Kumail were finding your dynamic and finding like when you were rewriting the script in, in pre production, when you were trying to figure out how you were funny together, where were you leaning towards? Because like we know what insecure right now is you and Molly having a lot of conflict. But it's funny to watch, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, what is it with Kumail? He loves, like, uh, certain things to feel real. And that's kind of one of the, I, w- I won't say battles, but one of the things that we were constantly discussing is just wanting the couple to feel real and the stakes to also feel real. And so, you know, whether or not that happened, those were just constant discussions that we were we were having. And I think he leans towards, if this scene is supposed to be funny, then it needs to have options uh, to be funny. So that meant, like, okay let's do another take or let's try it this way or let's just have alternates. Let's have the real grounded version. And if the director wants, you know, a version that feels more, um, a little bit bigger, then let's try that. But let's always do the version that you and I want. And I, I, there's something about that that I like because at the end of the day, you're leaving the film knowing, well, I know they got takes. They have a variety of takes to choose from. Speaking too, just of like what Aida brought up, the um, whole Molly and Issa of it all <laughs> in Insecure, um, there's been so much conversation obviously around them you know it feels like reminiscent of season one where there were team Lawrence versus team Issa now that you know there's team Molly team Issa conversations uh what was your reasoning for just wanting to dive into female friendship especially black female friendship in a way that we haven't seen on television before and the sort of um, readiness to show how fraught it can be and show the ugly sides of both characters. Were you sort of nervous about doing this and how people might react to it? And did you feel that it was still ultimately like a necessary story you needed to tell? Uh, all of the above. It was a, the series was naturally building to this. It's something that is true to my own life. You know, I've gone through uh, two and a half friendship breakups, two that were like of between me and the friend and, and the third was just watching two of my closest friends break up and they're they're very real and they're so painful. And they, you know, I've said before, have been more painful than any breakup that I've dealt with. You know, I'm still reeling from some of my female friendship uh, breakups today. And I think I haven't seen them portrayed much and with nuance mm-hmm. In a way where it's just like not necessarily one-sided and there's so many factors. Like in those friendship breakups, there it's never been one thing. It's either been we're tallying history, a history of things, or there's a communication breakdown. So we wanted to just explore the different facets between um, these two characters and also... These breakups that I've had have happened when we're just in different seasons of life and we're, you know, the the dynamic and the friendship may have changed and we haven't had a chance to acknowledge it or understand what that means to defining our relationship and if that even matters and, and why it matters. And they're just, you know, all of that felt very interesting to explore. And, you know, even in going around the writers room, we all had, at least all the women had stories about, you know, tragic uh, friendship breakups, and we wanted to incorporate that. It just felt like interesting story to tell. Yeah, I mean, not that we're sort of like the same, obviously, but, you know, I think, like, Lewis and I can even attest to, you know, like, um, gay men who have relationships, you know, that are sort of very close, um, closer, when we don't understand straight men relationships. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's but, um, they have them. I'm not curious. Do they? Yeah. But, but this idea of, you know... Um, 
it feels very universal. And I think especially in a time now, um, it's just great seeing that representation. It feels a lot like um, even the show Dead to Me currently, you know, just like this yeah. exploration of women on cable TV that we haven't seen before. Yeah, absolutely. I just finished Dead to Me. But to the straight man of it, I have, it's so funny because I have gotten, because people love to tell me their opinions about the show. And a lot of straight men have hit me <laughs> up like, what the fuck, this season is trash. And I've been like, okay, uh, but y'all can't, re- you can't relate. You can't, and that's okay. <laughs> it's not for you because y'all have trash, non-communicative friendships or like so many males are just content, like cutting people off and moving on or not expressing their feelings and moving on. And it's just like, I don't, those aren't, either you take all the traits of um, your toxic friends and just internalize them or put a wall up or you just cut them off and go on your merry way. It's so it's so interesting, the difference between male friendships, straight male friendships and female friendships. Who are these straight men jumping up with these horrible insights? How do we, how do we shut them down? <laughs> how do we stop them from talking? <laughs> I, you know, to be honest, Issa, I sent this trailer to so many of my, like, Middle Eastern bays that I was trying to hit on. Like, this could be us. You know what I mean? Like, that conversation of, especially me being a black Muslim kid, never thinking that I would see a Southeast Asian person, a Pakistani person with a black woman in an interracial romance. Like, I I couldn't even fathom mm-hmm. that that would have happened. And, you know, have you felt like there's been a conversation around the interracial casting or has it been accepted in a hopefully, like, calm way? I think it's a little both. I think some people are just like, ugh, finally, like, mm-hmm. you know, a non-white interracial couple, you know. It, it's just, like, it's such an obvious thing to do. And, you know, we've seen it a, a, a couple of times and things like that, but mm-hmm. um, it's just not... It's not as common as it should be. It doesn't reflect the world. Mississippi Masala. Mississippi Masala. Ooh, what yeah, is like, that? And that is, yes. That's that's like yes. Denzel. That is a movie, Aida. You need to see it. It's iconic. Yeah, it is. It's Denzel. With Mississippi Denzel. Masala. I'm in. I'm yes. in off yes. title. <laughs> off title alone. One of the sexiest movies you'll ever mm. see. Yeah, and that was like 30 years ago or something. So mm-hmm. it's just like that was the 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 last like Black Southeast. Asian representation yeah. that we've seen on on screen. So um, Pakistani Denzel is Kumail. So like he's holding it down. <laughs> I was just like browsing through uh, just times I've seen you in movies and TV and stuff. And I remembered like, oh, yeah, you were the voice in the Oscar winning short hair love. And you, of course, yes. you were in uh, The Hate You Give, which has just like chock full of awesome performances. And it made me wonder, what's been your greatest onset acting lesson from another actor? Watching Amanda, I'll never forget. We were like filming The Hate You Give. And this is not, it wasn't a conversation. It was more of an observation. But obviously during when you're shooting, there's time between setups. So I remember we were shooting this big riot scene where she gets super emotional and stands on top of a car yes. and has to channel this this anger and this frustration and this tearful, like, Khalil lives. And right before that, right before we were setting that up, she was showing me videos in a car with two of the other actors and we were just cracking up laughing and talking shit. And then the director was like, okay, it's time to do this scene. And I was like, oh my God, we were like really, we really were out the zone here. I hope that she can get to it. (laughs) And then this bitch just gets on the car and just delivers the performance of a lifetime. (laughs) And then we have to do another setup and we're back in that car. And she's like, okay, cool. And then even between those takes, we were still like, I was trying to like not crack jokes so she could stay in the zone. And she was like, 
cracking a joke and then would go back to tearful performance. So I was like, oh, wow. In that moment, I was like, actors are psychopaths. <laughs> and I don't like that. <laughs> That's something that I need to, you know, tap into in some way and learn. And so I'm always watching different people's processes and, and just you know, the more and more I, I, I work and the more I take on, I want to be able to find my own. Catherine O'Hara has uh, stories <sighs> of being in a movie with Meryl Streep. And before Meryl would launch into, you know, a Meryl-sized take, she would just be talking about anything and not even thinking about it and then launch right back into it. So anyway, don't mean to say Amanda's <laughs> necessarily the next Meryl, but they are apparently the same person. You just did it. Also, Catherine you O'Hara did. is a genius and yeah. hilarious. Yes. So, I mean, if yeah. she's talking, if she's intimidated by Meryl, then what is there? Amanda, right. When Amanda died in Hunger Games, I was like, oh, girl. Oh, I know you God. got it. You are set for life. Yeah. <laughs> like, we stole the movie. <laughs> My God. <laughs> we we literally just had um, Andre Holland on the show a couple weeks ago, and Man. they were together in the Eddy, and he was even talking about just how like scary, amazing she is mm-hmm. on set. Andre so, like, Holland, the streets are talking. Yes, yes, <laughs> she's yeah, she's a gift. She's got it. Speaking of like, Lewis brought up your voice acting. This was a story that I wanted to ask you about. That um. We talked about for the Cosmo interview that didn't actually make it to print. Um, I was asking you about you voicing LAX. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, in little? <laughs> like, like you, yeah. So, like, you go to LAX uh, and they use voices of actors um, who live here. Yeah. Um, you know, like Danny Trejo, um, Allison Janney are a couple of the others. And there's also your voice so like can you tell us how that came about and <laughs> just how surreal it was hearing your voice for the first time oh man it's so crazy i do some work with the city via uh, something called destination crenshaw which is kind of combating gentrification in that area and so they just randomly hit me up to be like hey do you want to um be one of the voices for lax and i didn't really know what that meant and they were just like you know we'd love for you to do it and i was like oh okay cool um, and did it in 10 minutes one day, you know, in between uh, Insecure shooting uh, in a studio. <laughs> and then four months later was getting texts like, bitch, is this your voice that I hear in the airport? Like, what is? And I was like, what? This is, <laughs> it rolled out. And and it's crazy. Like, I would get hit up about it all the time, but I never heard it until the craziest LA experience in my life. And I already told you about this, but like the, yeah. the, the Sundance getting off the plane, Got the news that that Kobe passed, obviously on the plane with everyone else, and uh, was devastated, and we were all uh, just kind of reeling from the news. And then I was the first one to get off the plane, and, you know, I was fighting back tears, and and walking off, you're seeing people in LAX also looking like zombies, looking at the screen. And as soon as I walk off the plane, I hear my own voice welcoming me to the airport, (laughs) And it was just, and it was so, it was so weird. I was like, this is, you can't write this, this bad (laughs) symbolic, I don't know, whatever it was. Yeah, it's too, it's too on the nose. It was too on the nose, Um, but it was just, it was surreal. And yeah, then I haven't heard it, it since. Well, I haven't been in an airport either. Yeah. We're staying out of the airport. (laughs) Hello, but (laughs) some people are not. I hate everybody. I don't know how y'all are dealing with it, but people are being a little bit too lenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember like when we had first chatted, like there were still people like hanging out at the parks um, before Garcetti was like, I'm not having that. (laughs) Shut down the parks. Uh, (laughs) And I guess like, 
finally, like, how has your quarantine been aside from, like, the insecure? Like, what's been your, like, self-care routine? What's, like, helped you get through this time? Walking around the neighborhood, for sure. Baths. Swimming. Like, when I can. Talking to my family every Sunday. Uh, has been a blessing. I was like, oh man, I really don't talk to my family. Like, I don't talk to my siblings all the time. And now we've made it, you know, we've made appointments to catch up and I get to see my niece and nephews uh, more often just on a screen than I normally do. So that's been the best part about it. Uh, but beyond that, it's been pretty, pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I concur, right? You're onto yeah. something there. Yeah, yeah pretty awful. <laughs> I think you guys do. Yeah. Uh, but you seem like you're um, doing well enough with it, and we're really excited for the end of Insecure and whatever y'all cook up for season five. Well, thank you so, so much. I, I appreciate y'all for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks Have a great rest of your evening. <laughs> you too, guys. Bye. 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 See ya. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. But once again, it's one of those weeks where it's hard to say that because we did just interview Issa Rae and Kristen Davis. True. We did the hard work. Somebody had to do it. Grueling. (laughs) But regardless, here we go, trying to make this the best segment of the week as usual. Lewis, what's your keep it? First of all, minor keep it. To whatever the fuck RuPaul was wearing on the RuPaul's Drag Race reunion special last week. Bitch, what the fuck was that? It was scary. I did not like it. (laughs) Looking like a 1971 Spider-Man villain. Yes, right. No, truly, I mean, to invoke a super tired cliche, Party City mask. Um, (laughs) But uh, RuPaul's Drag Race had the uh, reunion for the most recent season, which was, of course, conducted over Zoom. Uh, It was actually a pretty tightly edited experience. Rue spoke exclusively in pre-written one-liners, so it was pretty slick. Yeah. Um, but Rue herself... It was like Nini at a Housewives reunion. Right. No, I can tell this has been workshopped. <laughs> um, but uh, So Rue hosted the whole thing. It was sleepover-themed. Everybody was kind of in sweats and stuff. But Rue's outfit... And Rue usually hosts the reunions out of drag, so that's not a surprise or anything. Mm-hmm. It was He was wearing a purple hoodie, generic. I wanted to say congratulations to American Apparel. I don't know who made that arrangement. <laughs> and then underneath it, he is wearing this cyan face mask, which, by the way, doesn't go with a purple hoodie, period. And then secondly, has nothing to do with anything we expect of Rue in the looks department. I, I kept trying to solve it. Was it that he doesn't want to do makeup or, like... He, uh, like he didn't well, he prepare his face makeup. in any way. Right. Is, is that it? I don't know. Did he forget how to do his own makeup circa 2002? Right, right. Probably. Um, yeah, it's shocking. <laughs> I mean, because it also ties into the fact that, you know, we know that Rue doesn't do drag for public appearances except for extra money. Rue just seems to be tired of drag in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep... Thinking of that look and just thinking this is the most remarkably, one, bland RuPaul look, and two, mm-hmm. underwhelming. It's like when he had his talk show. I love the original 90s one, but, like, why would you tune into the recent daytime RuPaul talk show when he's not in drag? Yeah, right. It's just sort of like I, there's this whole disconnect now between the RuPaul that we were promised and the RuPaul that 
RuPaul now wants to be. Correct, correct. But my real keep it this week is to a phenomenon that I do find amusing, and I'm happy it's happening, but we need to diversify the name in question. And by that I mean... The word Karen has gotten out of control. Everybody knows that word now. Your aunt knows that word. People named Karen are now calling other Karens Karens. It's very confusing. And here's the thing. It's a funny name. Uh, people who are that age, who are complaining to the manager, who are getting caught on tape, whatever, treating their pets terribly or whatever the fuck goes viral these days with people named Karen, is correct. I believe Karens often do that. However... You know, I got a rep Karen Carpenter right now, arguably my favorite musician of all time. Remember, when you use the name Karen, you also slander Karen Carpenter. And this is why I would like to suggest other Karen alternatives. Pam is out there. Think about Pam. Do you know a Pam you like? Pamela Anderson. It's been years since she kept us fed. I'm about ready to give that one up. <laughs> Phyllis. We haven't had a wonderful Phyllis since 1973 in Cloris Leachman. In the, in the wake of Mrs. America with Phyllis Schlafly, happy to resume that. And please don't forget Helen. Helen, very unimportant name at this point. Mm. Ever since Helen Slater, I, I've been underwhelmed with the Helen community. And I say that with affection to my own Aunt Helen. Hi, Aunt Helen. I mean, even raising Helen really did not give us anything. Liz Fair was on that soundtrack, and I said, that's too bad. I'm angry. I mean, RIP Brittany Murphy, but it was a mess. I only realized in the past three years that Raising Helen is a play on Raising Hell. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, Brittany Murphy is not in that movie. I'm an idiot. I'm thinking of Little Black Book. Oh, around that time, sure. Yes. Uh, that one was Kate Hudson and Hayden Panettiere. Right. Hay Hayden Panettiere, movie star we forget about. Other than Scream 4, where I do believe she killed it. <sighs> I really need her to be alive for Scream 5. We didn't see the body. That's true. Also, there are no rules in that universe. People will come back. Whatever. Bring back Jamie Kennedy. Who cares? Yeah, I really thought he would have been the killer in Scream 3. Would have been better. Yeah. Anyway, um, my keep it this week involves Karens. Get out. My keep it is to the internet canceling everything. Oh, oh my. <laughs> here's, here's the thing. Hold on. Let me laugh at the basicness of this already. Go on. <laughs> We have a situation where an actual canceling needed to occur. You know, there was the viral video this week of an Amy Cooper who was called a Karen um, threatening to call the police on a black man in the park for telling her that her dog was off leash in an area where dogs are supposed to be kept on their leashes. Uh, in the video, she specifically tells the police, like, I'm being threatened by an African-American man. You know, at this point... White women uh, who call the police on black people, specifically um, using it as a threat, like, know what's going to happen, right? Like, you're essentially wishing that this person were dead. Uh, that is an instance where, yes, cancel the fuck out of this heifer. Unfortunately, this cancellation is happening amidst everyone being bored out of their fucking minds during quarantine <laughs> and wanting to cancel everything and the word cancel is lost all its meaning at this point i mean remember everyone going fucking crazy over old episodes of the tyra show oh right did tyra end up having to apologize for that she did it was like it was a nice apology you know yeah. she didn't really get into the particulars of anything you know she was just like you know, sorry for some of those wild episodes etc the people complaining about this probably weren't even born yet 
if we're digging into the recesses of pop culture to drag things, what the fuck are we even doing here? You know, it's like the history is there. Everyone knows about it. That's how we learn from it and don't do shit like that on reality TV anymore. You know, that's also why we don't um, manipulate people on talk shows anymore because, you know, Jenny Jones got a gay man murdered. That's true. I remember that episode. This just feels petty and dumb and useless. And the latest one is me waking up this morning to find Jimmy Fallon is over party. Because the internet has discovered that in 2000, in an SNL sketch, he impersonated Chris Rock in blackface. I will say, I think it would surprise people generally to remember how recent lots of blackface comedy is. I mean, Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars 10 years ago or something and has a moment of blackface in it also. So, I mean, just be aware... We are shockingly green about that issue. So long ago. First of all, this is 20 fucking years ago. Why does anyone care? Yes, we know that blackface is wrong now. We've known it for decades, um, well over a century. However, what does it do having a conversation about this dumb sketch from the year 2000 right now in 2020 when we're dealing with things like people actually calling the police on black people to be murdered, you know? Like, woke up this morning to another clip of um, a black man being killed by police in the Midwest somewhere, and it is just so fucking unuseful for people to be making mountains out of nothing. What 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 is this giving us? People, people were also mad recently about... Um, Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder, which is a complete misunderstanding of the point that that movie made when he was in blackface. Right. It's a funny performance. Um, uh, Also, in general, if I see on Twitter, blank is over party, I generally interpret it as sarcasm or as a a weak attempt at a cancellation, like sort of putting the idea of a cancellation out in the universe and seeing if one occurs without the actual follow through that requires. You know, it's just like this with Jimmy Fallon coming under fire. It's, it was on SNL. There were a lot of producers, a lot of other actors who were around when this situation's happening, but we're zeroing it on him just for, I don't know, whatever reason. And you know, it's, it's things like you can stop fucking with, Sarah Silverman, if you want to, um, because I think that her blackface apologies at the time were um, pretty weak, to be honest. I I feel like I'm only mad at her because of her response to the blackface, and Mm -hmm. more so than the actual blackface. But digging this stuff up in 2020, it's like, there there has to be more productive things to be doing. I, I have to concur on that one. Anyway. What an episode. Yeah. Come back, Aida. Keep us on track, damn it. <laughs> uh, thanks again to Issa Ray and Kristen Davis for joining us this week. And um, we'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess. The one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion 
and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.